Hello, hello. Welcome to Peripheral Thinking, a series of conversations with entrepreneurs, advisors, activists, and academics intending to inspire you with ideas from the margins, the periphery, because that's where the ideas which will shape tomorrow are hiding today, on those margins, the periphery. This week, I spoke to Claire, Claire Brown, Professor Claire Brown, to you and me. Uh, Claire's an academic working out of UC Berkeley in sunny California. Uh, she is an economist and practicing Buddhist uh, and many other beautiful things besides. In this episode, we talk about Claire's book, Buddhist Economics, an enlightened approach to a dismal science, uh, an economy which is not measured in how we spend our income as things are measured today, but is organized in such a way as to help you flourish in all your beauty. Uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation. Claire, welcome to Peripheral Thinking. It's wonderful to be here, Ben. So I actually came to your work via Jeremy Lent and was more kind of diving into the references in his recent book, The Web of Meaning, and uh, kind of found you that way. Yes, yes, I know Jeremy well, and we both live not far from each other in the Berkeley area. And we both think a lot about wisdom from other cultures and other places. And so when he wrote his book, I, we brainstormed quite a bit about Buddhism and what does it actually bring to our way of thinking in today's world that we can use for wisdom. Which then takes us neatly onto um, the, the kind of thing which was specifically referenced uh, a few times in, in Jeremy's book, which was your own book, uh, Buddhist Economics. Yes, yes. So that my book, of course, is mainly an economics book. And, and Jeremy's book is a book of philosophy. And so he once asked me, why did I write my book? <laughs> What's it all about? And so I wrote my book, Buddhist Economics, because as an economics professor at UC Berkeley, I was pretty disgruntled, and mainly the students were also, about the way they were learning economics, especially introductory economics, because we have our two major economic crises, inequality and climate change. And free market economics that they were learning, they, these major problems were ignored, and then we were teaching them how great markets were and how they solved all our problems and optimized welfare and income. And they just said, this doesn't relate to anything I want to learn about in economics. And so I was walking with my dog one afternoon and I looked at him and he looked at me and he sort of said to me, how would Buddha teach economics? Says a practicing Tibetan Buddhist. And I said, boy, is that a good question. And so it got me to thinking about Buddhist economics. And so would it be appropriate to give us a kind of headline kind of idea about how the Buddha would come at it? In my book, I basically start off with just three Buddhist teachings that are critical, that are really important to all Buddhists, no matter what their lineage or school. And that is that people are caring, they're altruistic, as well as self-caring, and that People are interdependent, both with all other people and with nature. And that thirdly, everything, all activity, all life is impermanent. And if you take those three basic assumptions, you totally turn free market economics on its head, where people are selfish <laughs> and don't care about others, where people are out to maximize their income and their power and who they are and not caring about 
nature or other people because they see themselves as completely separate. They're idiosyncratic. They have their own freedom, which is very important to them. And then economics always assumes that there's an equilibrium, that there's a the market supply and demand will take you to the best possible outcome and that's your equilibrium. And you just sit there. Um, very happy, content, the world's great. So when you can see that, those are exactly opposite of the Buddhist assumptions or worldview. And so Buddhist economics basically turns free market economics on its head and presents a holistic approach to the world. But I got to tell you, it's based upon economics. We already know Amartya Sen's uh, economics about capability and human freedom which basically mimics Buddhist economics in many ways because his background is as a Hindu from India. And then it takes the UN and Jeffrey Sachs' Sustainable Development Goals and integrates that. So we know how to reduce inequality. We know how to share prosperity. We know how to care for each other. And then it also takes climate science that says we care about nature and we're all part of nature. Because actually interdependence is ecological law today. Commoner told us that. He said, everything is connected to everything else. There's one ecosphere for all living organisms, and what affects one affects all. And so Buddhist wisdom became a law of ecology. And we realize today that, of course, we're all interdependent with each other. And the health of the planet is our health. So... Bring all those together, and you basically have Buddhist economics. Mm -hmm. I know your your work grew a little bit from the initial kind of essay or question, which was written by Schumacher. Was there a kind of link? Because he has, he has a he has an essay in his book, "Small is Beautiful" on on Buddhist economics, and so your work a, a kind of an extension and an extrapolating of the, the ideas which he he sets out a little. Yes, Schumacher's wonderful essay, "Buddhist Economics," coined the phrase. And that was in the late 60s, although the essay, book of essays came out in the early 70s. And it, has, it still today has a big impact. His focus is especially on work. And uh, as he came up with the idea of Buddhist economics based upon right livelihood. So what is work? How can we make work meaningful? And he, in the, the way it fits into his ideas of small is beautiful, is that he says we want to have minimal consumption for maximal well-being. And we don't want any waste. We really never want waste. And we want work to also not waste our time or anyone else's time, but to really be productive in a way that benefits us and the world. The only problem for me with Schumacher's essay is that it, it reflects its time, of course, and gender role. And so gender roles one where the men were all out working and the women were caring at home for taking care of us. And he talks about that, oh, how wonderful it is to have the women, you know, caring for all of us at home and the men are out working. And so that, of course, is no longer the case. And, uh, but I really love his book. It just skipped that part of work world. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's reflecting, reflecting a sort of time and cultural context a little. That's right, of course. One thing, which is something else we touched on when we spoke previously, was just this kind of question about why economics is kind of relevant to me. And I guess, in a sense, you as a, a sort of economics professor, it's completely sort of natural to you. If I think, though, 
about lots of people who go to our listeners, for example. These are people who, you know, they're running their own businesses. They're trying to make a positive mark in the world. They're really oriented to, to positive impact, to trying to make positive impact. They're curious. They're creative people. How, how would we answer the question about why economics is relevant to, to me in, in, in the work that I do? My guess is your listeners, with their expertise and their worldview, they already understand how important their economic system is and how it affects their lifestyle, how they live, how it affects their companies, how it affects everything they're doing. And it definitely affects the opportunities and options that are provided. It affects, of course, their work, their employees' work, their incomes. It affects the community well-being. It, it really affects also how whatever service or product they're providing is used in the world. And so what we care about is now with climate change, we also understand how the economy is affecting the air we breathe, the water we drink. It's really determining our quality of life today. And, and I, my guess is your listeners understand that. And I'm really hoping they want to explore deeper sort of how is, how is our economic system actually working and what can we do to make it actually provide a better outcome in terms of quality of life. So picking up kind of the first of the couple of themes that you were talking about, there when you're introducing the book, this idea of kind of people being altruistic and understanding our interdependence. Now, I think even if we just take those two things, of course, I think we do understand biologically from a sort of biological systems point of view, how uh, interconnected we are. But I guess one of the things I'm really curious about is that so much about how we exist and function in the world from really our kind of earliest schooling in many respects actually reinforces the idea of a kind of separateness. It reinforces the idea that competition is better or just a kind of given over cooperation. And so I just, I mean, just curious about your own sort of experience in teaching these things, where people are on this sort of journey of being able to understand and embrace the idea, say, of interdependence. Are people kind of there or are we still really battling up against the ideas of competition and separateness, which actually are very pervasive in our culture generally? That's a great question, Ben, because I think one of the things that climate change and global warming has been teaching us is interdependence. Like before we were in the, starting in the 80s, we were told how great markets were and the, how the role of government was just getting in the way. And we wanted to reduce taxes and we <laughs> wanted to let government stop making sort of the rules of the market and that we turn it over to big business and inequality just skyrocketed and it continued to skyrocket. And all of a sudden to not only inequality, but carbon emissions it really started going up in the eighties and like 80% of all CO2 or greenhouse gases in the atmosphere are from the 80s onward. And so all of a sudden we realize we aren't getting what we want from our economy. Our society is suffering from enormous inequality and now from climate change. And we're killing the planet. So all of a sudden we started learning about interdependence and we started listening to ecologists and the climate scientists. And then even the round business roundtable talked about what, how do we have to change our business plan? 
And so in 2019, Jamie Dimon came out with the purpose of a corporation is to promote an economy that serves all Americans. Unfortunately, COVID happened right after that, a year later. So it has put a dent in things because, of course, the economy fell off a cliff and we had to bring it back. The economy falling off a cliff was just one more example of interdependence, a global interdependence. And then Larry Fink in BlackRock was also talking about how we have to really change the way we do business. And corporations really need to use ESG criteria for their operations, where ESG is environmental, social, and governance. And he said, and then some companies were pushing back and saying, we just want to maximize profits. And Larry Fink this year pushed back and said, listen, the companies using ESG to, to form their business models and their strategies, they are actually performing much better. And investors want that. Investors are demanding that. So your company, if, to be a good capitalist company, Larry Bing said, you need to follow ESG, which also points out interdependence. I'm curious about that because I know there was a, there was another one of his because the Larry Fink you were talking about the chief executive of BlackRock the the investment firm so he, he publishes his letter each year doesn't he and I know there was one another one kind of recently but I think at the same time and I know this is a little bit off the topic of your book but just curious about it and so at the same time as he's talking about those ideas he's also saying they're not going to divest divest from fossil fuels is my kind of understanding and I'm just curious about what you think is going on the, to the extent to which they really are advocating for change or the extent to which they're talking about something which feels like a, a kind of topical thing to have a point of view on? You know, I think this is a great question, especially for entrepreneurs listening in, because they need to really grapple with this question of, okay, here's what I'd really like my company be, to be doing to caring for all the stakeholders of caring not for our workers, for our community, for our environment, as well as for the people who love us money and our shareholders. I want everybody to do well as we produce a product or service that helps the world. But then they say, what's the right path for that? So one of the problems I have with BlackRock, talk to them about it, the people in the sustainability section, they come back and say, we're just doing what our clients want. We're just, if they want, they don't want to divest from fossil fuels, then we don't. And I say, you know, just a second, I've seen what you're doing. You're not teaching them. We have all these studies that show that actually divestment from fossil fuels makes fiduciary sense. And you need to really educate them on that. And that's when they back off, because to be honest, they love just following what they think their clients are demanding. Whereas I think our leadership, our entrepreneur leadership is going really in the right direction. Many, many of them are educating the public. They're educating their customers or clients about this is really helping you. And it's also helping the world around you. And they bring in stakeholders to be part of the decision-making process. So that's really much better than just slouching off and saying, oh, whatever I think the market wants, I'll give them. Because the role of a successful entrepreneur in my mind, and the studies show this with case study after case study, 
is if they take a leadership in educating their stakeholders and their especially the people who are their customers, then they do much better. They do much better as an employer. <laughs> they do much better with the bottom line. So I was reading some uh, research this morning, actually, which was by a guy who's involved in in, in supporting regenerative businesses. And so that being a, a, a kind of new version or a, a new iteration of these kind of ideas. But one of the things he was talking about, which I need to look at again, which was all about the kind of, st from a statistical point of view, actually, was how much more resilient companies are, which uh, actively gave away a proportion of their profit, even not as significant as part of a kind of ecosystem. So if you were part of 10, 20 or 50 organizations that all committed to giving just say 1% of your, your profits to the group each year, and that that was distributed to everybody in the cooperative, each of those businesses has a kind of much higher rate of success. And so there's just idea of kind of sharing proceeds in order to, to, to lend resilience feels like quite an important one, I think. But again, it's just, I guess, getting into sort of different ideas about how things, how businesses might be run and how they might be organized. That's a great example of way a company can be very clever in thinking of ways of sharing. And ways of sharing in a way that gets more buy-in from their various stakeholders and it gives them some good PR and a, and a good outreach to the community so that people are really clever. Oh, your listeners are very clever and talented. And I just think that often we just need the time to sit back and have these discussions and think about, oh, what could we do? How can we do something that's out thinking outside the box that helps us all? Taking the time to to be able to reflect, and so I know in in your book, actually, in the introduction, there's a, a, a sort of a plea, an instruction, a kind of orientation to actually start this with some meditation, and that being a kind of a sort of key sort of requirement in a way for for the practice. And so you said that, that your your own route to this came after starting to study and practice Tibetan Buddhism. Is that right? Oh yes, that was very important to me. Although that was a about at least a dozen or 15 years ago. But I, I think for your listeners often, the first thing when I wake up in the morning, I just pause and breathe and give gratitude. And then I just try to give myself a little bit of time while I'm being quiet and not exactly meditating, but more like contemplating. Okay, so I have this wonderful day ahead of me. And I know I have a huge number of demands and stresses and problems will come up. But let me just think about, remind myself, what do I really care about? What do, at the end of the day, how do I want to feel about what I've done? Like for me as a professor and writer, I'll think, you know, I really want to have, to have provided help to my students and give them new insight, or I want to be able to write something, I'm, a blog or whatever I'm writing that provides some help to the rest of the world and to keep thinking in these broader terms about what can I do to help the world be a better place. And for me with my activism, because I'm an echo Buddhist echo activist, I do a lot of political work in California. I'll also think, okay, what can we do today in a specific event that we're doing to really push ahead and get the power from big oil back to the people so to stop using fossil fuels. 
just think about it in that way at the beginning of the day, I think really helps us throughout the day to stay more focused and to maintain our priorities. I, I think for all of us, one of the hardest things is setting priorities and then maintaining them so that we, we get so pushed around by everything that's happening, but that we really do need to remind ourselves, I don't have time for everything. I really do need to maintain and stay focused on my top priorities. And we know they change a little bit from person to person, but they basically have to do with the well-being of our companies or our work or our students or our customers. And we want to stay focused on that because otherwise we end up having our energy go into activities that we don't really care about. And at the end of the day, we feel exhausted rather than feeling like, hey, that was a pretty good day. I did what I'd hoped to do. The thing that was coming to mind as you were talking there, I think, is it, is it Suzuki Roshi, the, the kind of famous quote, the most important thing is to know the most important thing? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and I think in a sense, it's what you're talking to there. The ability to know that and to kind of remain calm and focused and remembering that while the, the winds of your kind of life blow on by. Yes, yes, that's right. And also to remember that everything's impermanent so that this helps actually when things are really bad, <laughs> I especially remind my students when things are bad. Hey, you know what? Give it a day. Things will be totally different. And when young people realize that, they have a much easier time in life. And then for those of us who've been around the block a few times, Remembering impermanence really helps remind us that change is fine. Change is, a, is actually a very positive part of life. And we want to welcome it and not fear it, but we also want to be ready for it in that we want to know change is part of life, it's flexible. We have to be ready for that, especially as business leaders or as intellectual leaders or whatever. We want to be ready for change and integrate it into the way we're thinking and acting so that it's not, it's a positive force and not a destructive force. Before you wrote the book, you were running a class on, on Buddhist economics. Is that right? So what I did was I was thinking about what would Buddhist economics be and was writing about it, but I didn't really have enough time. This is a great way of thinking about priorities. So I was having lunch with a colleague, a psychology professor, and she looked at me and she said, you've got to create a way that you would be working on Buddhist economics. And she said, as professors, if we ever want to have time to work on something, we teach it. And I said, of course, because once I'm teaching something, I have a class, I have to go to it, I have to prepare for it, then of course I have time. And so I set up a seminar at Berkeley, which is a wonderful place to teach because we're very open-minded to new thinking. Um, I set up a seminar called Buddhist Economics, and I went in to tell my vice chair I wanted to teach it, and he looked at me and he said, now, a lot of schools you'd go that, and they say, no, I'm sorry, we don't do that. He looked at me and said, well, that sounds so interesting. Tell me about it. <laughs> and so I've been teaching it for at least eight, about eight years now, I'd say. It took me a while, of course, to prepare it and, and get it ready. I think what happens oftentimes is when people get into the kind of 
rough and tumble, for want of a better phrase, or in their kind of work, when they're kind of running their companies, the, the, how quickly people forget these things. And I guess also conscious of the idea that so much of the other language around work and business talks to more of that sort of the competition, more of that kind of me versus you idea. Were there particular aspects of what you were teaching that helped people connect back to those kind of ideas that kind of people are carrying, our altruistic nature, connect back to their understanding of kind of interconnectedness? Were there specific questions that you were raising in there which helped people reconnect to that? Or do you find that that was information that was readily available to everybody, they just needed reminding of it? Oh, boy, that's a great question. And I think actually, Ben, it's got a generational divide. I think that when I give talks to audiences that are older, they have a much harder time figuring out. They, they under, especially the women are good on altruism. They understand caring for other people. The men, a little bit less so. I mean, I'm talking about people over 50, say. But, but they do have more trouble connecting with nature, um, sort of the ecological viewpoint. And so that they, I think the people over 50, even though that generation actually caused most of the problem in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, and it's, it's a dilemma. Now, with global warming, they've been learning very quickly about the interdependence. And I'd actually say one of the things that's helped the older generation understand interdependence is having grandchildren. So the once I... Once I see people in, and we, I start asking them about the quality of life for their grandchildren, they really start to get it. Oh my gosh. And then they, when they, when you tell them about how much their generation put into the atmosphere of greenhouse gases, they're shocked and they're appalled. And so you can put it in terms of their own life and what they've done and what they care about. And that when I go into my classroom where people are, basically 18 to 22 or so, they have a much easier time to understand interdependence. It's like, oh, of course, they're still much more networked. They're still understanding how their health affects other people and how other people affect them. They're much more understanding of ecology because they've all been learning it. And so they're much more less set in their ways, let's say. And most of them, at least the students that I see at Berkeley, they care deeply about inequality and they care especially deeply about the climate crisis and they want to do something about it. If anything, they're actually a bit impatient with the faculty. It's like, we got to be doing more. Every single class should be talking about climate and what to do about it so that they're really, I think, on the forefront of demanding that we recognize interdependence and deal with it right now in terms of stopping and mitigating the climate crisis. If the kind of language of the last 70 years, which of course has not got us anywhere useful, has just always been around kind of financial growth above all else, what are some of the other kind of ways of thinking or ways of measuring that I might bring into how I'm kind of reviewing progress or thinking about how things are developing on a personal level? Are there some guides that take me beyond those old measures which haven't served us well? Yes, that, I think that's a really important question because companies that want to do better need to think that it's actually possible 
and and have a business model that works. So I, I think the first thing we have to just step back and say is, look, maximizing profits is not my goal. My goal is to make adequate profits for future sustainability of my company. I want to keep my company healthy financially and going forward. But I'm not trying to just do what we think of as maximizing revenues and especially net revenue or profit. So I want my company to be healthy financially and I want to be able to pay myself and my workers livable wages. And I want to be able to ensure that we're not polluting the environment or causing any harm. And we all want to really work together as stakeholders. That means employees, the community, my customers, to basically think about how to use our product or service to fit their needs and not some made-up or abstract need. Because I'm out in the field a lot and talk to entrepreneurs and companies and so forth. And it's like one of the things that's really important is to be out in the field and to find out, oh, what do my customers want? How are they actually using my product or service? And how would they improve it? What would they do differently? So you want to get feedback. One of your goals should be a sustainable company, but also trying to figure out what do your customers really want? What can you do to maximize their enjoyment or use of your product? Because if you can do that, then you'll succeed and your company will succeed. But you're not going to do that sitting around the table. So the interdependence really de demands that you be out Inter interconnected and working with your community, your stakeholders, and especially your customers, because then that feedback is invaluable, but it never stops. It's not like there's an endpoint. Remembering permanence means things will be changing, and we certainly saw that during the pandemic. They changed very rapidly, but even when there's no pandemic, things will change. People's needs will change. Your customer base might even be changing. And you want to know that and stay on top of that. And what I found is really interesting is that you don't need to visit every customer. In economics and in our development engineering, when we go out into the field to see how people are actually using a new technology, say, that we've developed, and we're trying to prototype it and make it better, you actually just need a little bit of input out of, say, a hundred people, you talk to, say, 15, you know a lot. And so you can selectively just get feedback and think about that. But mainly you're out in the field making contact and listening. And that's just invaluable. It's such a kind of funny thing in a way, this whole, the whole idea around impermanence, because of course, you know, that everything is always changing and everything has a time to die are two of the sort of few ever-present rules which affect our lives in, in all its kind of realms, whether it's at work or wherever it may be. But of course, so much talk in 
again, the kind of business literature or thinking about kind of business schools even, actually, and it goes much kind of broader than that, this idea that somehow we can exert control over our kind of environment, whether that environment is our immediate environment, or of course, with much bigger consequences, control over the environment on a kind of much, much bigger scale. And it just feels to me that people really don't understand or actually are quite scared of what the implications of really embracing impermanence might be. That's a great question because I think the entrepreneurs that I talk to would state it slightly differently. They don't think of it as impermanence because that's somewhat of an abstract idea. But in their daily business dealings and in their thinking about what's the right strategy, what's our next step, when they're talking to their managers and their employees, when they go out into the field and talk to their suppliers or their customers, they think much more, I think, the ones who are successful and are good listeners basically think, oh my gosh, that's a great idea. Or then they hear a problem and they think, oh, let's talk about how to solve this. What do we need to change? So they see change as new ideas or solutions to something that's happening. And that's really just impermanence in action. But they view it, I think, in a positive way as how to go forward better. One of the things which I guess happens, which of course is just a kind of symptom of how our crazy minds work, is we're also quite bad at letting ideas go. So we may be, and maybe I'm just talking about myself. So it's the slightly kind of puppy dog thing. Conversation sort of sparks a new idea or through conversation, through dialogue with the kind of market, whoever it might be, you kind of uh, start exploring a kind of new idea. But the extent to which we don't let something else go to create space for that to thrive, what we're inadvertently doing is creating layers of complexity in our work. And I just I was curious then around, again, this idea of kind of impermanence and Yes, it's kind of new ideas maybe mean old ones die, but it's, I guess it's, it's kind of, yeah, it's, it's how we sort of school people or the extent to which we sort of school people on kind of understanding more broadly what the idea of impermanence might mean. Wow, that's deep. I love it. So let me just step back. And so, of course, we have economic theories about destruction in order to create space for innovation. And in economic and in Buddhism, we have a wonderful phrase called monkey mind, which means our mind just gets jumbled up with a zillion ideas and thoughts and how to calm it down. And some of these go together from what you're saying. So that, first of all, just because we hear of a new idea doesn't mean we should implement it, but mainly that we should explore it. And I absolutely agree with you that within a company, you need to say, okay, does this idea replace something we're doing or does it just improve it? It's like, okay, it takes it to the next step. How does this really fit in? And does this really fit into our business? Is it really something we, we can do well? And so there are all these different layers, as you pointed out. And that's where good leadership comes in. It's like, okay, you're an entrepreneur, you're the leader. You, you have to really take everybody through all those steps to come out with what you're going to do and do in a way that's actually successful, but also in 
in our own work in our technology labs, we do rapid prototyping, meaning that we'll come in, we'll start working on an idea and keep thinking about it, going, keep going out to the field and changing it. Because one of the things I do like about impermanence is we're never at a final solution. It, there, there's no endpoint. And so the other thing I think as leaders is that we need to constantly remind ourselves this is a process. And sometimes we're going to do better than others. It's like that mainly we want to learn from when things don't go so well. I won't exactly call it failures, but, you know, we have some better ideas and some worse ideas. We have some better days, some worse days. But mainly, I think it's just to not get stuck. As you mentioned, not get stuck on any of those. Just keep going ahead. And as I mentioned earlier, hey, one of the great things about impermanence is tomorrow can be much better when you're having a really warm. <laughs> I, mean, I like what you're saying, though, the idea that the kind of rapid prototyping, of course, is a kind of manifestation of of embracing the idea of kind of impermanence. So just really stepping into that place of a sort of constantly iterative process, constantly sort of learning, constantly adapting, constantly evolving, and that, that kind of flow. I really like the kind of picture that you're painting with that. Oh, that's really well put. Thank you. Thank you for putting it all together like that. Yes. So one of the things that actually we were just sort of talking about with that, which sort of touched on is the kind of, is leadership actually. And so the individual, the kind of role of the individual in all of this and uh, the kind of values that the leader brings. I'm sure in, in the book, when you're talking in the, in the Buddhist economics book, to what extent does it start to talk around kind of the importance of personal practice in there? Oh, yes. The book touches quite a bit on personal practice, personal lifestyle. And... I think that's because one of the things I like about Buddhist economics is that it's got us, uh, it cares about the human spirit as well as physical health and mental health. It cares about this, the health of the human spirit, which is an important part of our lives. Um, and our human spirit needs nourishment just like our bodies and minds do. And we're pretty good at nourishing our bodies and minds, but I think we're less good at thinking about nourishing our spirit, which makes us human. And so we do care about how we live personally. We care about our carbon footprint. We care about our wasteful consumption. But mainly that's because it affects our own quality of life, who we are and how we live and, and how we relate to others is really important to us. And it should be. But at some point, one of the main lessons of the book is, look, please live well. We all want to live well. And there is quite a bit of discussion about what does that mean and how you might bring meditation or a sitting practice into your life and how to deal with, you know, we all have bad habits of mind, habits of body, whatever. And so one of the things that Buddhism teaches us is how to overcome these kleshas or basically bad actions of how we think or speak or act. But that once we're working on that, that's well and good, but that's not actually helping the world. That's helping our quality of life and most likely the people around us. But one of the big lessons of the book is everything's on two levels, our personal level and then the societal or economic level where 
to we really do have a moral responsibility given the climate crisis to become active in changing the world that and we can do that both with our work with our jobs but we got have to go outside of that we really do need a system transformation and so a lot of the book focuses on how do we change our system to stop the climate crisis and also to share prosperity which we're not doing that very well either so we're destroying the planet we need to be healing the planet and we need to be sharing prosperity instead of causing enormous hardship globally to people who don't have enough to eat or a place to live or enough to they aren't getting education and health care so so we need to think about that globally i read uh, the article of yours that you wrote on for the publication lion's roar isn't it? the the buddhist publication where you were talking about the importance of a kind of activism and uh, one of the ways that I'd, I'd come to your work via jeremy was because I know you were you're talking about the kind of guiding question if the if the Buddha taught economics, what would he teach? And an exploration of mine, you know, is if the Buddha ran a business, how would the business be? And I've always just instinctively come back to this thing that, well, surely if he ran a business, it would be an activist organization. I mean, it clearly it would be active, it would be in pursuit of kind of change. It would be a kind of campaigning organization. And so you have spoken quite a lot about this, this kind of need for activism at its heart. And for you, this is very broadly about activism in the sphere of climate. Is that right? Yes, yes. But to be honest, Ben, I really haven't thought about it from a business perspective, which and when I saw your ebook on about if Buddha were on the board, how would he walk this, which is great. I, I love that perspective and that thinking. Because I agree with you, individuals work together in groups. And I always think more of NGOs or some kind of environmental justice organization or some kind of group that's whole being, whole reason for, for having that group is climate activism. And so you're taking it a step further, which I really like, of this idea of, hey, what about every company thinking about activism and joining with other companies or with other communities or with groups to care right now about the fact that we only have till 2030 to bring down carbon emissions 50 percent how can we stop destroying the planet with greenhouse gas emissions that's such an important question so i really appreciate your you're lifting it up to the company level and Probably I should ask you, what would Buddha say on that one? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's good. And in fact, part of my kind of the, the kind of motivation and reasons for these podcasts is for me to explore that question. And because, you know, I, the things that we spoke about, whilst abstract terms, what does interdependence mean? What does a kind of an altruistic heart mean? What does impermanence mean for organizations, for businesses, particularly in terms of how they function, how they act? the decisions that you would make, the kind of work that you would do. When we were speaking earlier about the kind of Buddhist economics kind of reference in, in Small is Beautiful, you were explaining there that there was a kind of link there to right livelihood. That's sort of kind of limited 
in describing the kind of work that you would do. It, it clearly articulates the kind of work that you wouldn't do, but this is the, the kind of edge really of what I'm exploring, this thing around activism. Like if your organization was an activist organization, what would it do? What would it focus on? And it feels to me that the big problems of our day, yes, you would make decisions around what the differential pay rates were in terms of the kind of lowest earning employee to the highest earning employee. I think there would be clear sort of guidance around that. But yeah, just curious then where this comes back to the activism point, but it's something that I'm exploring more than I, something I have the answer to today. Right. Yeah. I like the way you put it. Well, you explore within your own company and just as we have two major global crises of inequality and the climate well, global warming, within the company, you can also look at questions of equity, and then you can also want to lower your carbon footprint. So you have scope one and scope two emissions that now every company is supposed to be measuring, and they are. But then you have to also look at scope three, and this is finally getting out of your own company and asking our product or service, what's its carbon footprint? How's how is our product or service actually affecting the well-being of the planet as well as of people? And, and so that's like the first step of getting outside of your own company and thinking about sort of your impact and what you can do globally as in, act, in action. And then you can take it a step further, I think, and say, okay, who among and our industry, can we join forces with to actually focus even more powerfully on stopping using fossil fuels? Stop in whatever, it's, it depends upon what industry you're in. But how can we connect with other like-minded companies and work with them in a way that actually creates change in terms of, first of all, we've got to stop destroying the planet, and then we got to start thinking about healing the planet. And just like the individual, just so I say, hey, get off, get off the sofa, go out and join a group, and you really only need to work on one major problem, or you, you don't have to totally solve the climate crisis because you can't. But your company, along with other companies, can make a huge impact in one area. There is a certain area which you know well as at Autorigor, and you can then focus on that area. And as I tell individuals, hey, you know what? We all have skills and talents. There's an enormous synergy. So if we come together, we can actually have a huge impact because the synergy is so powerful. And what I like about what you're doing is it's that's the message to companies too, which I hadn't really thought about before, but it's the exact same power that comes from combining skills and talents and energy and a lot of know-how and applying it to something that people are passionate about. Yeah, thank you. And, and so uh, in terms of, as you were kind of mentioning there, it, um, on those kind of instances, so your kind of invitation, your request always to people is to get involved in whatever way that is, if, if it's connecting with the local organization or whatever it might be, bringing to bear your kind of talents, your skills, just to be active, to be contributing to, to this work. And I guess with students and, and people you're working with, these people are in that place. They are in the kind of active place. They are contributing. 
To what extent do they, are, are you feeling that kind of more and more people need the push or is the kind of movement to people getting involved in doing that work, is that kind of very much in play? Oh, Ben, what I've found all the time is everybody says, how do I do that? Because the people who are already doing it, it's just part of their lives. And it's already their practice, their way of being is to be activists in something while they're working and having their own personal lives. But so many times when I'm speaking, people say, oh, I don't see how, uh, I don't understand how I would do that. And I hear this even globally from global audiences. I said, you know what? Once you're determined to do it, you'll actually find the right organization. You can go online. But first of all, sit back and say, okay, what are my skills and talents? What do I have to offer? Everybody has skills and talents and something to offer. You start there and then you say, okay, what do I really care about? Um, what's really important to me? Like for me, it's phasing out oil and gas production in California. And, but it could be something else. It could be electric vehicles, electrifying buildings. It could be public transportation or a walkable city or a ride, getting bicycles for everyone to ride, whatever. There's something that's related that you care about and know about. And so once you do that, then it's amazing how once you're motivated and have an idea of here's what I have to offer and here's what, what I really care about, amazing how all of a sudden you realize there's already a group there's already a group where you could bring together or there's already a group you could join. And I won't tell you how many people have emailed me after having this kind of talk and they come and say, no idea, absolutely no idea that this was, I had anything to do with it. Thank you, because you were right. Within a month, I reached out to organizations. I started brainstorming. I started thinking about it. And I'm now working with this terrific group and they'll tell me what it is. It's never the same thing. It's everybody's so different, which I love. But once you're motivated and once you decide this is a priority in your life and you do have time, then it's amazing how well it flows into becoming a part of your life. And it becomes a really meaningful part of your life. I found that without my climate activism, I'm not even sure I would have the ability to have hope and enjoy life right now with the news being so bad. And yet, whenever I'm feeling down and out, I think of something uh, uh, that I'll be doing or I go out and do something if I am not working right then to work with other people and then look back and say, look what we've done. Okay, it makes a difference and it's something that we'll keep doing. We still have a lot of work to do, but the rewards are enormous both personal, but especially societal. And so everybody can do it. It's just a matter of giving yourself the time and space and the motivation. Thank you for that. I guess it's, uh, I, I've recently read Paul Hawkins' book, Regeneration, which is a, this hugely comprehensive guide pointing to the many, 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 many things that you might do and ways of getting involved and a really super guide, really, or at least uh, source material to answer the question, what could I do? What might I do? Yeah, yeah that's, that's one great idea. Paul, by the way, is a Buddhist. And there's so many resources online that once you start searching, you'll say, oh my gosh, look at all that's going on. 
which is also informative and helpful to your own thinking. But let me just add one more thing that I think is essential besides information and resources is courage. That right now we do live in a time of crisis. It's an accidental crisis. And also big business and big oil has way too much power over all of our lives and what's happening. And it takes courage. And that's one of the things where your organization, working with other organizations, gains their power. And people working within a climate activist organization gains their power. So that we really need courage, though, to come together because courage, we need courage to demand the change, courage to really work hard, even when we have a lot of setbacks. And the nice thing about working with others is that you have each other's back and you can get through downsides, but celebrate upsides. And also you, you do need courage every day to realize life has lots of ups and downs. It's all impermanent and we can make a difference. So I also like to always say we also need courage to enjoy life. It's a really important part of who we are that we live not to just worry, but we live to enjoy. And so I really remind people that courage in being, being a fearless warrior in that sense of helping the world is really important to your own well-being and your own happiness and your own way to enjoy life. When you say to people, you know, you kind of need courage, what's people's kind of response to that? Oh, they're energized by it. They love this. Oh, of course. Okay, we can build our courage, and especially because we're courage with working with other people. Um, and as you mentioned, we get courage from taking action, having sub-successes, but you even get courage from failure. You say, okay, that really irritated me, and that gives you some new energy and more courage to keep going. That I think courage is especially from our interactions with other people and organizations. That's really critical. Mm, yeah, so it comes all the way back to the interdependence point there you go mm, okay yeah brilliant claire thank you very much for that we really appreciate it so where where can people find more about uh, your work and the book what's the best place for them to hunt you down in the kindest possible way oh great there's a website called buddhisteconomics.net and unfortunately my book is now out of print although you can find a few used copies but it's available on kindle so my students are especially reading it on Kindle. And Audible, I will add. So enjoy. I hope people will read it and we keep up these discussions. And Ben, thank you so much for peripheral thinking. Oh, no, thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time. I'm really curious, particularly as a lot of the sort of systems that we've depended on as they crumble, as they creak, as they're sort of revealed for what they are. I know uh, Jeremy has a great line in his book around as these things crumble, people start to look around for new ideas. And, you know, one of the things you were kind of referencing at the beginning, as a lot of the neoliberal ideas are kind of exposed for what they are, this whole devotion to free markets and all of those things, as people increasingly realize that those things don't work, that they start to look around for new ideas, new ways of making sense of the world. And I hope with that, that people come to the idea of Buddhist economics as a way of starting to fill that hole. Yes, we definitely know the system we want to create, and we can create it. And that's what I think the main lesson is. 
we don't have to stick with this outmoded system that's been killing the planet. Mm. And we can move forward to a better world. And we can do it together. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Claire. If you did, maybe check out the conversation with Mark Anielski. He's also an economist who paints a picture of a richer, fuller, more inspiring way to live. Uh, you may enjoy that one too. Uh, and if you like the conversation, please share it. Share it with friends, share it with foes, share it with anyone who you think may benefit from listening to. Uh, and if you like what we're doing, go check out the website. You'll find everything about the Peripheral Thinking podcast uh, on buddhaontheboard.com. Go look for Peripheral Thinking there. Uh, until next time, thanks again for your time. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to speaking to you soon.